Scarlet. Oh, Rhett. Oh, Scarlet, Scarlet, Scarlet. Oh, Rhett, Rhett, Rhett. Wait a minute, I think I'm Scarlet, you're Rhett. Do we have to start over? No, let's just keep going. Oh, Rhett, do listen to me. I I must have loved you for years, only I was such a stupid fool, I didn't know it. Please believe me, you must care. I want peace. I want to see if somewhere there isn't something left in life of charm and grace. Do you know what I'm talking about? Maybe I do, but Rhett, darling, I've been wondering whether we're on the wrong side of this whole slavery debate, you know? You're talking nonsense. Our slaves are happy and content and docile. They're like pets. Mm. But what if they have their own, you know, fully developed inner lives? What if they have wants and needs that have nothing to do with us? Okay, now you're sounding really crazy. I know, I know. I just thought for a moment that maybe they might have equal standing as human beings. It was just this idea that I was playing with, but it passed. What were we talking about? Ugh, what's going to happen to us as a couple? Oh, yes, darling. That's so much more important than what's going to happen to a bunch of silly slaves. Let's talk about ourselves some more while these other people chatter on the radio. Is that a black woman I see sitting at a microphone? Darling, I'm sure she's just there to help the white people. And now, in the role of Aunt Pity Pat, Colin McEnroe. Thank you so much. So, uh, it's been a great week for Greg Hill, by the way. He's played Humphrey Bogart and Clark Gable in the same week. Um, All right. So, today is the nose. And this has been a rapidly changing set of topics because, you know, I mean, the news caught up with us. So, uh, we are going to begin, in fact, with a Supreme Court decision which affirms the right to gay marriage under the 14th Amendment. Uh, We'll uh, have... You know, perhaps a speedier conversation than the topic deserves because we have so many other things we want to talk about. Also, earlier this morning, uh, we got uh, – I should say who's here. First of all, Irene Papoulos from Trinity College, from Trinity Cine Studio, James Hanley, Tanisha Dugan who's with uh, Heartbeat Ensemble uh, and is uh, also uh, a mom. Uh, recently, uh, her baby showed up at the last nose. It was very exciting. So um, – so Tanisha and Irene both kind of uh, produced ideas earlier this morning or maybe late last night that kind of collided in an interesting way. And Tanisha pointed out to us that Bristol Palin has once again announced that she is – or maybe she has announced that she is once again uh, pregnant. Uh, she's I think 24 years old. And um, so anyway, in, in her website, she's – well, we'll get to sort of the tone of that announcement. And then Irene uh, directed us to a piece that's technically running in the Sunday magazine of the New York Times uh, this weekend, but of course already up now, in which she, Elizabeth Gilbert, she of Eat, Pray, Love, uh, renounces her past as a seductress. Uh, There may or may not be connections, but uh, we'll see. Uh, A little later on, as the intro suggests, we will talk about uh, Gone with the Winds uh, as America kind of empties out its closet uh, of uh, symbols connected to racism and the Confederacy and slavery. Is it time to look at Gone with the Wind in that exact light? And then if we have time, I hope we do have time. And in fact, that's the point. We do have time. Um, A piece uh, that attracted the interest first of Betsy Kaplan and then several panelists from the Washington Post about the new vogue for waiters uh, clearing your plate away even if the other people at your – a table have not started have not finished eating yet so uh, that's a, that's a lot to cover but we're going to do our best here so uh, we will start with the Supreme Court decision as Tanisha pointed out in our emails Man, they're in kind of a roll right now it's very it's they're on such a roll that one conservative commentator sent I, sent me a pitch today uh, that uh, maybe um, 
Justice Roberts was being blackmailed. This had to do with the, his uh, ACA um, decision. Not obviously, he didn't participate in the majority opinion today. But uh, based on his decision on the Affordable Care Act, maybe he was being blackmailed. So that's a conservative commentator saying basically, you know, that there are videos of Justice Roberts, you know, being spanked or something like that, which <laughs> seems like not a good conservative argument somehow. But anyway, uh, that's neither here nor there. We do need to talk about this decision. Uh, and James, as a married gay man, you get to go first. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, let me let me just put it to you. I feel like it would have been a surprise if it went the other way uh, and, and that this more feels like, you know, just one of the final kind of knots around the, the, the package, one of the last little ribbons and bows. But maybe, I don't know, I'm seeing it f- through my goggles. How does it look through yours? Well, I, I think that this has been telegraphed for a long time. And given the way the Supreme Court works, I mean, they have a meeting right at the beginning where they do a sort of rapid go around to see who's on which side of the issue, sort of get a basic idea. And uh, I think all of the sort of uh, the speculation that was going on seemed to be going in that direction. But then again, um, I think there is, as witnessed, the dissents, the bitter and nasty toned dissents that um, there's a lot of uh, residual homophobia and a failure to understand the nature. I mean, the nature of the Constitution, as it is explained by Justice Kennedy, is so expansive and so inclusive as to understand it as a living document that makes an effect on people's lives. And I can tell you, I I consider I'm very fortunate to have been able to marry my husband, Norman, in Connecticut, and we have, you know, the protections and the celebration, if you like, that that includes in Connecticut. But if we travel to other states, you you could lose that. And you could have a situation where one person couldn't visit the other in the hospital or whatever. And so there was this feeling in the back of my mind that, yes, there was a possibility that the bitterness and hatred could out. But in it, but there was a lot of telegraphing that, you know, well, supposing you did after all of this public opinion um, change that has happened so rapidly in the past 10 years really, um, would it be possible for the Supreme Court to go the other way? And everybody sort of in writing about the Supreme Court does say, well, you know, the Supreme Court does have a sense of its relevance. Um, in the country. But then I look at Citizens United and I think, wow, you know, this is possible it could go the other way. But do you have a moment of how do you feel about the, the decision today? Well, I think it's great. I, 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 I really think it's an incredible example of, of, of forward movement in the sense that, you know, feeling a sense of equal respect, you know, that on a certain issue. But you have to look at other issues that are around it, which is that in many states, um, uh, gay and lesbian LGBT people don't have protections, particularly transgender, for example, is a lots of states just like, you know, basically uh, turn a blind eye to the violence that's conducted against transgender people. And so, you know, there's a lot to be done. This is a major milestone, but it also makes me think of now we're going to have to work even harder because <laughs> the extreme right is going to go nuts trying to Establish things like you know special religious exemptions and not baking cakes and um, and also of course making sure that these um, important rights like employment rights not being fired because I mean just think of for example you can now get married in certain states which didn't allow it before you go and get married then all of a sudden you lose your job because you've been you've been outed effectively in a state where you don't have those rights so there's a lot to be done but it is a day for a great celebration I, no no doubt i mean i think it's a spectacular step forward 
and uh, it affirms the best hopes for interpreting the Constitution in a constructive way. Speaking of the extreme right going nuts, I mean, we got to sort of see it right away, not only sort of outside the court, but inside the court. Um, and so, uh, Tanisha, I'm, I'll just serve you a real big fat fastball to hit uh, into the bleachers. But uh, Justice Thomas. Uh, mm. <laughs> I didn't know this one was yeah. coming over yeah. here. <laughs> so also speaking of people who drew completely the wrong conclusion from Gone with the Wind. Um, <laughs> that would be me too. Uh, yes. Said, uh, since well before 1787, liberty has been understood as freedom from government action, not entitlement to government benefits. He goes, goes on to reason that um, that basically um, that um, that the government can't bestow dignity. Yeah, the government can't give you dignity, and they can't take it away. They can't give you humanity, and they can't take it away. And for some reason. He feels the need to go further and say that this was the case with slaves, right. <laughs> that they did not in fact lose their dignity or their humanity. Right. Um, and I mean I, I, I understand his reasoning. I sort of wonder why he Do feels – Do you the, understand well, the whole I under, reasoning? I understand his reasoning, yeah. <laughs> but I don't understand why he felt the need to go there. Well, I mean his entire success – and I'm going to separate his intelligence from his ride to – uh, the, the highest court in the land is predicated on him denying all of his blackness or that his blackness has any effect on how he interprets the world. Um, so he has to he has to say that he has to do it. He has to deny it at every turn, because if he doesn't, the narrative that he, you know, is the, he is not the exceptional Negro. He is just an intelligent man who worked really hard to be where he is mm-hmm. doesn't quite add up. It just seems must know that on some level too. I mean, I I I often wonder what not often, but sometimes wonder what what how he whether he how was it, it like inside his head? About you know, that? the government cannot give him self awareness, and the government cannot take it away. <laughs> uh, no, he cannot. I, I I just find it. I, I don't know. I I do find that particular. Um, psychological mechanism peculiar that when slavery was not particularly on the table, although of course the Fourteenth Amendment. I mean, I guess maybe it is kind of on the table. But, but he in that in in that moment shows that he can escape his own coloredness, mm-hmm. like and and then that it's what makes him uh, hypocrite in so I, many. Yeah, I, ways. I think there's something else going on there, which is of. Uh, I mean, there are some people you can really read as having a boiling anger under the surface. And he has – on those rare occasions when he speaks and when he writes, certainly, that anger emerges and it has certain targets and it's about his own insecurity, I think. I mean I, I think there's a lot to be said about the insecurities of people on the Supreme Court playing out in their, in their analyses of these things. But the things that he said were extraordinary for anybody to say but for a black man to say who's on the highest court in the land to say that in a sort of didactic way, I, I found that astonishing. Yeah, I, it could be he's just messing with us at this point. It's like, oh, what else can I say? I really get him riled up. All right. So uh, let's uh, – before we close the book on the Supreme, Supreme Court for today, Irene, you know, one of the real puzzles as we, we look at the psyches of these people all the time, it's hard not to. So one of the really puzzling, more sphinx-like figures I think increasingly is Chief Justice Roberts who participates effectively uh, on behalf of the – Affordable Care Act a, a day or so ago. And then – and you get the feeling maybe he counted the noses and thought, eh, they don't really need me on this one, do they? Uh, you wonder if it had been uh, – you know, if, if Kennedy hadn't been available, if, if things had been differently, whether or not Roberts would have done what he did, he did. But instead, he did something that we see judges do all the time and I think we almost never believe, which is to say, you know – 
it's not really what I think about all this or feel about this. It's just kind of the way the law works. You know, I mean, I think with the Supreme Court, we increasingly don't believe it. But his quote was, he tried to have it both ways, right? He said, if you are among the many Americans of whatever sexual orientation who favor expanding same-sex marriage, by all means, celebrate today's decision. Celebrate the achievement of a desired goal. Celebrate the opportunity for a new expression of commitment to a partner. Celebrate the availability of new benefits. But do not celebrate the Constitution. It had nothing to do with it. Um, I don't know. What do you make of this man? Um, I'm I'm not sure yet. You know, I just feel like I don't. But I think uh, that's a wonderful. I mean, that last line, but don't celebrate the Constitution, mm. is kind of a, 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 a it, that sort of undermines the, the direction it seemed like he was going in. You know, because it's sort of like it, it can't be. It can't be anything about the Constitution, people. Be care- you know, don't, don't, don't worry about that. But, because he's not siding with this decision. Right, because he's not siding with the decision. Um, but, um, but at the same time, it, wouldn't it be amazing if somebody – it seems like you know, the, the, if somebody could actually move into, some, into logic, some kind of realm of logic that the Supreme Court is supposedly based on, but it almost never is, the logic to, of how they interpret the law, you know, that he's kind of trying to say it makes sense. But, I, you know, probably that's not the case. I think I agree that he's just saying that because He's it, just it, trying it, it to worked. have it both ways. It? It's yeah. never, maybe it's never going to happen. You he know, doesn't want to get not invited to the weddings. <laughs> he wants to go to the weddings. I think there's actually, in that last line about the Constitution, I think there's something a little more sinister. This is a man who thinks ahead with rulings. And clearly, there are going to be Supreme Court cases that are based on the rights, employment rights, for example. And those are going to come before the Supreme Court. And by saying after after Justice Kennedy made such a strong constitutional case um, for this ruling, he is then inserting that sentence at the end saying, you know, laugh all you want, but this is not the Constitution. He's, he's laying a placeholder for the future, I think, to say, well, this wasn't based on the Constitution in spite of the fact that there would be a fight about that. I mean, I, I don't think that that was accidental at all. I think that's – he was doing that for a reason. I, yeah, I agree. I mean, I agree with you. I don't, I, I don't think it was accidental either. Yeah. All right. We have to sort of switch gears here because we have so many topics here. So um, I'm going back to, uh, to Irene right now because uh, she is – uh, responsible in a titular way for Elizabeth Gilbert and Tunisia will be responsible for <laughs> Bristol Palin. Uh, Dang it. So the, oh. so who does that leave there's, me? There's, <laughs> I think you're, the, you're, the, you're the ref or something. I don't know. Um, the, um, there's no upside. There's no winner in this one, believe me. So, <laughs> so as I said, uh, the, the piece uh, that's running uh, in the Sunday Times magazine already up on the New York Times website, already attracting a lot of comments, both positive and negative. It's called Confessions of a Seduction addict and Elizabeth Gilbert, she of Eat, Pray, Love, who, by the way, was born in Waterbury and grew up on a Christmas tree farm in Litchfield, um, is, uh, talks about how seduction is the art of coercing somebody to desire you, of orchestrating somebody else's longings to suit your own hungry agenda. It was never a casual sport for me. It was more like a heist, adrenalizing and urgent. And then she goes on to say, if the man was already involved in a committed relationship, I knew that I didn't need to be prettier or better than his existing girlfriend. I just needed to be different. The novel doesn't always win out over the familiar, mind you, but it often does. The trick was to study the other woman and to become her opposite, thereby positioning myself to this man as a sparkling alternative to his regular life. Anyway, she goes on to say that 
she's had an in hoc signo winkus moment or something. I guess that's the <laughs> wrong way to say it. Uh, she's probably had a solid on the road to Tarsus moment. Something's happened <laughs> anyway, and she's decided that that's not her anymore. She's not going to do that anymore. She's not going to seduce men, and she's especially, I guess, maybe not going to seduce men who are you know, in relationships with other women. So what intrigued you about this, Irene Papoulos? Um the thing that intri- if I had just read that and I didn't and it wasn't I didn't know it it didn't have the name Elizabeth Gilbert on it I think I would have kind of rolled my eyes at this at the self absorption or just the and the ending is so ridiculous that maybe we could talk about it in a minute but um, but the fact that it is Elizabeth Gilbert who has you know thousands of people that are hanging on her every word millions who, perhaps even. millions millions not to mention the millions of dollars that she made out of that book you know and the millions and of people that like oh my gosh she's giving a reading wasn't it i think it was at asylum hill church she gave a reading here um a few years ago i didn't go but what i heard is that they were women hanging from the rafters you know <laughs> and lining up outside and trying to get in and you know probably not just trying to see if their husbands were there <laughs> <laughs> And um, so what is it? So then that just makes me wonder, what is it about this, about her, that, that, that appeals to so many people in a demographic that I you know, know that I'm a part of in the sense of like a, a middle-aged, white, educated woman, you know, who, you know, is kind of feisty about things, you know. Um, and there's a lot of people like, like me out there that are, that are admiring her so much, not necessarily in the academic world, because in the academic world, it's easy to sort of scoff at her. I mean, it's easy. It's very easy to scoff at her. Uh, if you look at her from a certain angle, but then when you see the and and it is kind of she's she's she ha, but she she has an appeal to a lot of mainstream people. So, um, uh, but I I and so there and there's sort of something about the confessional nature of this particular piece and her her work in general. You know, I, I think the appeal has to do with I'm going to tell you secret things that maybe you might have thought, but. Um, but I thought them, and it's going to be interesting for you to to see you know, to see them because, and then people can sort of feel like, wow, she tells us so much. You know, it's so interesting; they want to hear more. So there's a voyeuristic appeal that this has, um, along with its narcissistic appeal. You know, I mean, it's so interesting that she could have said, you know, confessions of a sex addict because sex addiction has been like this thing in. A lot of print media. I feel like every magazine I pick up, it's like, I'm a recovering sex addict. What does it mean to be a sex addict? How do I? But she calls herself a seductress addict. <laughs> and, and I think it's that kind of language That's that true. attracts women to her. Because you don't want to be a sex addict sounds clinical, right? But if you're a seductress you know, addict, you're like, I'm, I love to sort of get people within my you know, realm and my clutches and I and I like to tease them and titillate them. And and that's a female story. I mean, I don't think yeah. any woman could say that she doesn't want to titillate and excite and, you know. Yeah, but it's so much. Seduce. I mean, it's kind, yeah, and so it's kind of fascinating. Like the thing about studying the other woman so that she can be the opposite. Which is, is so true. Like, oh, is it? Oh, but come on. I don't if know. If you actually I mean, like go into the world, I would – strongly suggest that most women look at other women well, and right. size them up oh, if yeah. they're quite honest about oh, it. I, I 100% now, agree with that. Now, the second half of it, right, that you size them up and then say, I want to be better, 
or in her case, different. I just want to be different. For the purpose of attracting their man, that's the part that's sort of like, mm. All right, well, Wouldn't it's, you it's, study the man yeah. instead? Well, they do that too. But, so I don't know, James. As, as, as people know from my emails, that, um, I, I, I find this piece really kind of an artifact of what I think of as our – and I, I apologize for taking a declinist tone. But I really feel that we're living in this emotional idiocracy where these tiny little insights – Idiocracy. The, yeah, oh, this okay. – this well, it's the name of a movie. I can't yeah, really, I know, can't but, do it. but you know, these little aperitifs that amount to nothing mm-hmm. are kind of celebrated, but in essay form. That this is the idea that this is worth writing an essay in about. Far that, too many words. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that I have figured out that it's a bad idea to seduce men who are in relationships with other women. It just seems like such an incredibly puny insight. But but I, I do think that it, it's and 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 then to be applauded in the, by uh, by commenters for one's honesty. I know that. <laughs> That's the thing that bothers me about it because in the context of announcing that you're withdrawing from this previous pattern of behavior, <laughs> um, exactly what is there to be admired about, you know, like like announcing this new stance that all of this didn't mean anything before, that now um, you should see things differently. It, it becomes – I think narcissistic was the word that certainly uh, uh, came to me. But also it, it, I, I think that, Colin, you're onto something with the, 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 the number of words, the length of it, you know, the, the insignificance of it really is that – I mean everybody in a sense goes through some sort of awareness that, you know, maybe when you're you know, in your 20s, you have a feeling whether it's a man or a woman or you're, 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 whatever your identity, you are having a sense of – a power in life to express yourself and to be attractive to somebody else. And then maybe as you get older and more experienced, you begin to change your values that you also – you're not only conscious of yourself changing and perhaps not being able to project yourself quite the way you want to, but you're also coming to a place where you're more experienced and it may not be that important. But to take that and you know, write this many words about it, it – well, can I, yeah, and, and never. Yeah, well, let me challenge you on, the, on one yeah. part of this too. Or, or I want to hear. Yeah, this is another thing that you already know that I think. But I feel like this this piece doesn't acknowledge the tremendous hostility towards the the woman who's in the primary relationship. In other words, to do this, mm. I mean, Elizabeth Gilbert makes this entirely about herself, right? This is this thing that I needed to do, uh, and because I needed this, you know, whatever, and I needed the adrenaline, I needed this, I needed that. But the truth is, you can't do that without feeling incredibly destructive towards this woman who, by her own admission, she's. She's trying to undermine this, uh, whoever the other woman is by being her opposite, to that, take her man away. And to me, there's a competitive aggression towards other women that's implicit in that behavior. All right. And that's where the – but that's where the um, that, that's where the uh, uh, confessional side of it comes in. You know, she's going to tell – that's a very taboo thing to, to think or say and she's going to tell us that. I don't think she and does so, though. I don't think she I, owns it. Uh, but I also want to get to the ending because I think her, her solution, you know, so she's changed. You know, that's all behind her now. Now she's going to be a different person. For example, she's with some guy and they're, they're thinking, you know, she might be a guy that she uh, in the past would have seduced. Instead, they sit on a bench and decide like, let's see, do let's we want to have sex Italian or not? <laughs> yeah, they say, do we, do we want to have sex or not? And, they th- and she thinks about it. And he's uh, presumably he does want to and she has to think about it. So she thinks about it and she thinks about all the things they're going to do. And she's like, nah, I don't want to bother. And so that I think is very revealing because it's her sense of sex or sexuality is uh, he's going to he's going to want me so much. And he he's just going to it's all about her. You know, so once it's about let's just actually have a conversation. What a concept. Let's have a conversation. Instead of saying I, I wanted to talk to him about how he felt. It's like I just thought about it in myself. And that just made me think. 
wow, uh, it's all. And so that's why the indifference to the other woman is connected, too, because it's just all about her. And that, that's not seduction. That's not sexuality. At I do all. kind of want to challenge. I mean, yes, she does speak about you know, the interest in looking at the other woman and, and wanting to be her opposite. But she's as interested as in she is interested in men. Mm-hmm. She is interested in the married man and that and that has its own game. But she is really interested from what I got from the article. She's interested in the seduction and the destruction of the man. It's not necessarily seduction and destruction of that relationship. Right. But and it's also not how so I the, the man wanting her. That's See, what she's not interested in the yeah, man well, himself. I think those two things are connected. I actually do think that this is all completely Freudian, that she grew up on this Christmas tree farm <laughs> surrounded by balsam firs. They had no, uh, they, the had no they had no television. They had no record player. She had one sister, and there was nothing to do but compete for daddy, and she just sort of carried that over. Uh, um, That's why Annie Leibovitz is my favorite, Waterbarian. Well, uh, Waterbarista. I forgot the two. Okay. So uh, speaking of people who grew up surrounded by fir trees and balsam trees and who are sometimes and who are are sometimes sitting on park benches wondering whether to have sex or not and apparently (laughs) making bad decisions – no, not you, Tanisha. Okay. <laughs> uh, but Bristol Palin. Bristol Palin oh. has, a, has uh, grown up around fir trees and occasionally made some bad decisions <laughs> about the man sitting next to her on the park bench. She apparently has done this again. And she's announced, I thought rather plaintively, you know, she wanted to, she didn't want to do this yet, but people are already trolling her. She's struggling to keep her chin up. She knows she's, this has been a, and will be a huge disappointment to my family, to my close friends, and to many of you. Oh. Uh, this, is, this is because her mother lost her job. She needs the money. Uh-huh. <laughs> I feel kind of bad it's just, for her. I mean, it's you all do? so heartbreaking. Yeah. But it is heartbreaking because, granted, uh, I think that the choice to have a child is fraught. And I, f- why it's heartbreaking to me is I feel like she has been denied the ability to make the choice for herself. Exactly. And what comes out in in these That's answers, in, in how she's yeah. sort of coming out with it, is like, I'm going to carry this torch and I'm going to do this thing and, you know, yeah. I'm disappointing everyone. Like, she clearly sounds like she does not want to have this child, it yeah. seems to me. And yet she feels stuck in this life where she has to sort of muddle through and... Oh, now you're making me feel sorry for her, too, even though I didn't. Well, that's why I called this... I, the, I, you know, I, yeah. I, this is why I called this the Philip Larkin segment. You know, yeah. I mean, this. Uh, I actually believe Elizabeth Larkin is a, a victim of her mom Elizabeth and dad, Gilbert. or at least her dad, Elizabeth uh, Gilbert. Mm. Can I say Elizabeth Larkin? Yeah. Uh, it's Philip Larkin, and right. I know somebody <laughs> named Elizabeth Larkin. All right, yeah. so apologies, to Elizabeth, apologies, first of all, to Elizabeth Larkin, who I know listens to this show. Elizabeth Gilbert uh, is a uh, kind of a victim. And Philip Larkin famously wrote this poem, which I cannot quote. Um, but it's, you know, your mom and... Because it be censored. Yeah, your mom and dad, they mess you up, basically. <laughs> um, and, Ending with, so don't have children. And so don't have children. <laughs> and, and so... I, and this, James, I think this is clearly the case. With I mean, Bristol Palin may be just a dreadful person in her own right, but I don't think we know that. I think at the moment she's still at 24 completely in a prison uh, made of snowmobiles and, and fir trees and, and dead wolves. Yeah, <laughs> Right. I mean, if you think about what she's probably had to go through, I mean, in the past 10 years, I mean, I, th- I think that her childhood ended and she didn't have a complete sort of sense of herself. And so now she's in a place where she's partly a victim of the endless appetite for, you know, exposure and, and press attention. 
and she doesn't know how to express herself well. And so she is actually kind of like, to me, uh, reading about it is and, and watching her body language, it's like, um, it's, it's like a, a disaster that is being played out publicly because it must be paid out, played out publicly because that's her family. That's who and she like, is. Yeah. And so she doesn't get a chance to really deal with the issues in any other way than expressing them awkwardly and, and ending up in a place where – yeah, as you say, Tanisha, she's totally unhappy and, and yes. like, you know, she's really in a place where her life can't really be what it should be. Nobody, and the lawyer in she me can't, can't, can't okay. wait to see, like, you know, because she just divorced, she just, you know, right. broke the engagement. I'm like, whose baby is it? Right. Yeah, That's right. going to be on the That's cover of all the and magazines. Well, yeah, is, the fact that she couldn't just say, Mom. I'm going to use birth control. I know you don't want me to, but I'm going to use birth control, and mm. that's going to be it. You know, why and can't moreover, you? why does that at 24? Why does that have to be a conversation with your mother? Why exactly. are you because exactly. your mother is Sarah Palin? Right. Because your mother is Sarah Palin. Your mother's a bully and a publicity hound. As Clarence right. Thomas right. would say, the government can't take your dig- cannot take your dignity <laughs> and humanity away. But Sarah Palin can. All right, so <laughs> we have to stop, or we won't have time to talk about Gone with the Wind. All right, we're back. This is The Nose. With us are James Hanley, Irene Papoulis, Tanisha Dugan. And uh, as of this morning at 9 a.m., guess what was the best-selling Blu-ray feature film on Amazon's U.S. website? It was Gone with the Wind. And uh, one explanation for this being offered by a critic uh, from The New York Post it was the, is that he did it uh, by mistake because, in fact, uh, his, he ran a column which was widely circulated and reblogged and stuff like that, basically saying – not, you know, calling well short of a ban on Gone with the Wind, but suggesting that it might be more appropriate to see in museums than in multiplexes, as he puts it. Uh, he was trying to encourage readers to examine the Oscar-winning film's ideas, the offensively sympathetic portrayal of slavery and enshrining the falsehood that the Civil War wasn't fought over slavery uh, and that in the wake of the Charleston Church slaughter, as we are re-examining all these other artifacts, uh, maybe it's time to take a look at Gone with the Wind. So now it's time to unveil Tanisha Dugan's real a shameful, dirty secret from her past. That I watched The Real Housewives of Atlanta and Kenny Moore says Gone with the Wind Fabulous all the time. And all I ever wanted to do was be Gone with the Wind Fabulous. Yeah. You wanted to be, didn't you want to be? I did want to be Scarlett O'Hara. And it's funny, I was talking. For Halloween or something? For Halloween. I was talking to my mom about this last night and she remembered, which I thought was incredible. And I said, you know, you didn't let me, you know, you let me wear the costume, which I appreciate with the big hoops. Made of the drapes? No, my oh. mom was quite a costume seamstress. I, oh. She was legit. I even had a hoop, like a hoop, uh, what do you yeah, call it? Hoops yeah. underneath. Yeah. To, oh, so much fun But to she wear. would not, it's so much fun, but she would not let me call myself Scarlet. She was like, you're a Southern Belle. You were born in Virginia, so you can own this part of it. You're a Southern Belle. When I asked her about it last night, she was like, yeah, I could never quite figure out why you were so like stuck on Scarlet O'Hara, but I couldn't get you. It's the, I mean, it's the clothes. Yeah. It's the clothes. It's and a- the fab- I mean, it's kind of... It might be more than that. It might be something more insidious and subtle than that, too. I mean, oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, my favorite American girl was Samantha, who was like this Victorian rich, girly. 
I loved the rich white girls. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, you know, you're ignoring. With no responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> you're completely misunderstanding the message of Hollywood in, in Gone with the Wind. Yeah, I was going to say. That was, yeah, that you're the worst nightmare. <laughs> Admittedly so. It's such a, that is such a, gr- I mean, because I remember watching that movie as a kid and just thinking, oh my God, she's in love with a rat. How exciting. Yeah, exactly. You know, like that's all I really want. It's like, oh yeah, and then there's all those other scenes with the soldiers. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get back to the love story. You know, which is girl. You and know, she still looks fabulous it. after the Little fire. Girls. I mean, she just. But maybe that's great. a good reason to get rid of it. You know, the fact that people, if people watch it for those reasons, they get indoctrinated with things they should not be getting indoctrinated with. You know, but um, well, it's hard think, to make. And a you case. can think you're better than Melanie. Melanie, you know, exactly. Like, you know. It is, well, it is a type of indoctrination. I'm not really in favor of getting rid of culture, yeah, uh, but but maybe looking at it really really differently in any way, and yeah. and talking about it a lot more than we do, because mm. uh, you go back and look at all this stuff, and boy, the book, whoa. <laughs> I mean, yeah. they really, it, it James, really goes as, you, to town. as you appear to know, they really cleaned up the book to make the movie. Yes, exactly. And and the the, the book is really, to me, is really repellent uh, it, 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 in all of its attitudes and what it's trying to do. And one of the issues that I think uh, the, the writer, Roxane Gay, was on the radio this morning talking about uh, black people always having to be expected to apologize for mm. everything. Yes, and And, uh, you know, in a way, Gone with the Wind is like a is is like a giant thing about sort of trying to absolve white people from having done slavery, and to sort of to emphasize all of the sort of romantic sweep and uh, to uh, make the obvious implication that slaves didn't have it so bad and that this was something way beyond you know this was some massive movement that was taking place and that white people were really it's kind of like I don't know it it made me think of the judge who uh, just lost his job in South Carolina, who uh, tried to get the sympathy of, of the, uh, for the family of the killer uh, in, the, in, the church killer, in the church shooting, you know, that, that somehow, oh, you know, they're going through this terrible pain. Well, I've no doubt they are, but you, you have to think of context and you have to think of what you're saying by saying something like that. And, and something about Gone with the Wind contains those repellent notions and, um, you know, as somebody who runs a movie theater, uh, you know, we get requests to show Gone with the Wind. And the people who come to see Gone with the Wind, they, they, they respond to it like sort of a Hollywood classic, you know, and the music and the clothes and the, the, the stars who are in it. But there isn't a discussion about what it represents on that real basis. And that's what bothers me. I mean, for the same reason, I mean, we would – if we wanted to show Triumph of the Will um, uh, or we wanted to show um, a- any of the sort of propaganda films um, that uh, Birth of a Nation is the sort of – is the most obvious one. If we wanted to show that, we might show it as a special event with speakers who would actually point out exactly what was going on here. Why was D.W. Griffith glorifying the KKK? What is racism? You know, you have these discussions, but we don't have those discussions and somehow – Gone with the Wind is insulated because of its sort of romantic sweep and the, the fact that it fits into Hollywood. But it's full of ironies, the whole thing. I mean, it, it, it's, it's full of the sort of sense of, of, of being completely disconnected from the reality of brutality and, and violence that slavery represented. And to create a film, to write that story, I mean, I, it, the mind reels to me. I, I find it a really... What do you think of Baz Luhrmann in Australia? Well, <laughs> is that terrible? <laughs> Well, you, what, I, I think 
I want to just sort of second what James is saying is that the, the accomplishment of this movie is that it deals with the time and place that it deals with without being a conversation about race, right. which yes, is kind exactly. of an amazing feat. You know, yeah. I mean, if you think about other things that are – I was trying to think about other culture that, that's, that's – well, maybe. But I was trying to think of other culture that's problematic. OK. So showboat. Showboat's a little problematic in certain ways. But it's also just a long conversation about race, right? I mean that's yeah. – you know, you, that's, what, that's what's there. You know, and sometimes you may, may like what it say, says. Sometimes you might not like what it says. But it's just there all the time. Same thing with Huck Finn. You know, I mean Huck Finn is a conversation about race. There are some people who get a little bit freaked out about where that conversation goes or just how bluntly Twain lays it all out. I personally think it's in, in certain places about as brilliant – a conversation about race as you can have. But I just don't know how – you seem to I, – I, uh, so you seem to have an answer to this. I can't wait. No, how, do you, how do you write that book? How do you make that movie and not have it be about race? I guess to me it's sort of like it's symbolic of where we are in America in a lot of ways, right? So like I can look at Gone with the Wind and, and mind you, I haven't seen that movie since I was yeah. like nine. Right, exactly. So my memory of it is of the – Baz Luhrmann aspects of it. My memory of it is the sweeping music and the beautiful costumes and, you know. And what's the conclusion of it? Remember the conclusion of it? No. Mm-hmm. Hair today, no, goon either. tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I, I guess... I have nothing else to say. <laughs> but I feel like, you know, the, like you said, you know, that it, it completely washes over race and I feel like that's like the moment that we're in right now mm-hmm. where we're like, let's just wash over, you know, the... If, if we were to do a film about today, we would spend more time, I think, looking at how fun Fancy by Iggy Azalea is and not paying attention to the subver- the sort of nature of her rise and how it relates to and, race and, relations and, in America. And how is it that can, the, and how is it that terrible things can happen? Right. You know, as right. if it's some far away distant thing. But How is that the moment we're in happen? now though? Because it seems like it seems yeah. to me yes. that we're kind of Okay, all right. We are in that, but seems I mean, compared to, me, but... to compared to how we were in the fifties and sixties. Yeah, I feel like say. all I want to talk about is yeah. race these days. Yeah, I mean, um, so it seems like we, hallelujah, we, white people we, who want to talk about race, well, we're yes. getting somewhere. <laughs> but it, but aren't we? Right, I hope I mean, so. <laughs> because it seems like that is a it's, a. it's a hopeful sign, but I I agree with Roxane Gay with what she was saying yes. was that this expectation that somehow the black people who were killed and their families, although they make the decision to be forgiving, which may be you know admirable which is in fine itself, if they're forgiving in private, exactly in <laughs> private. But there's the expectation that is being written in the media and in commentary that this is the noble thing to do right. is to forgive and to say, okay, well, well let's just move. Move on. We okay. can't move on from something like this. You you really have to take responsibility for this. I agree with and so you. Go, uh, Gone I, with the Wind kind of like neuters the race exactly, exactly. conversation it, it, in the way yeah. that right now it we are neutering anodyne. black yep. anger. Exactly. What do you mean? Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you think, what do you mean, Gone with, you mean Gone with the Wind talking about getting rid of it neuters the conversation no, or the, the, the movie film. itself? The movie yeah, itself. Okay, yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely 100%. But I, I guess, and so I'm agreeing with you, but at the same time, I think. The fact that we're even talking about it now on the radio that that Roxanne gave. I mean, I agree with you about the forgiveness thing. That is that. But well, black but Twitter I think has been all on that it. attitude. <laughs> that attitude is being called into question in our culture in a way that I don't think it, I haven't seen. I wouldn't say in my lifetime I've really seen it 
called into question in the same way that you, you can't get away with that as easily as maybe you could have 20 years ago. I just want to tell, uh, tell a quick story that sort of uh, touches on this and then I want to save a little time for our frivolous uh, ending topic too. But So um, as a lot of people know, I got really interested this week about the fact that Calhoun College at Yale is named after John C. Calhoun uh, and I wound up writing a piece about it for Salon. But in the course of doing all that, uh, I got in touch with several people. The first one was a guy named Doug who I actually went to school with for 10 years. 10 years? Yeah, 10 years. Six years uh, at a boys' school and then uh, four years at Yale. Uh, and he's African-American. And I just, you know, I was, I never remember having a conversation about any of this while I was at Yale. So I said, and he was in Calhoun. So I said, uh, <laughs> I said, Doug, did this ever come up? You know, did people ever talk about this? This is all via email. But, you know, sometimes you can pick up somebody's tone of voice from email. Mm-hmm. And what came back very tersely was, yes, it came up. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you're exactly. just, like, you're just you asking me. You just that. weren't. And so that, I also asked my roommate, my my roommate for three of the four years I was at Yale is a guy named Ken Jennings, not the guy from Jeopardy, but in fact an African-American <laughs> man. And, uh, and Ken actually came up with this beautiful piece of eloquence. He said – he said really – he said, first of all, people didn't talk about it that much, even African-American people. In the 70s, it was, I think as Irene is suggesting, a different time. I mean people's consciousness was really low. This is this sort of post-Panther moment of just people were really apolitical and boring. Uh, and he said, but it's also – he said, it's not like we didn't notice. And he said, you know, I sometimes say that being black is a little bit like being left-handed. He said, if you're left-handed, you notice everybody else who's left-handed and you notice that the ladles and the measuring cups and nothing works. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> because if you're not, you probably don't notice that much. You know? Ladles? Yeah, well, yeah, ladles. Left-handed ladles? Yeah, left-handed. Okay. Yeah. Ladles have a notch. So that yeah. They, yeah, oh, the pouring spout on the ladle. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Um, which is also, well, anyway, there, there's uh, some interesting stuff about uh, who gave me some, le- uh, an African, a young African-American woman gave me a whole bunch of left-handed presents for Father's Day. So I thought, well, oh. it all fits together. So anyway, um, but we Speaking of ladles and food and stuff like that, we probably have like two or three minutes for a topic that at least some of you were quite intrigued by. It's a piece from the Washington Post. Uh, It's about a trend that the author notices. The author has noticed that what happens is people come over in restaurants and clear away your plates really fast before you're even done. She says, the other night I was eating a plate of noodles and enjoying it. I was out to dinner with a friend, hunched over a meal we'd been planning for weeks. The restaurant was newly open, blah, 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 and then it happened again. Are you done with that? The server asked. Fingers already comfortable with the rim of my plate. Can I get it out of your way? Yes, I had finished eating because I am a vacuum. There was no food left in front of me. But my friend had not. His meal was only half consumed. No, I said, we're not done eating. Now, I confess I had not noticed this uh, happening, but two of you have, right? Who wants I, to go? I, I have and you two. have all three yeah. of you. Have, yeah. Yeah. We, yeah, and and we don't like it, right? No. I think, <laughs> um, I, I think it's obnoxious. It's, it's, it's obnoxious. Like, My father always used to say, if you're in polite company, you gauge your eating to the other person so that you finish at the same time. Mm-hmm. He always said that. But I but I think that it's um it's just you know, there's something about not being together, you know, sort of like, well, I'm done, so just take my plate and, you know, whatever. The other person's silly. I feel like it's a, I, I don't know, I have a theory about how we don't listen to, we don't value listening these yeah. days, it's a distancing you know, to the other thing. person. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a distancing thing. It's like, oh, who cares? I'm done with my meal, as opposed to we're having a meal together. I, I think it's horrible. I also don't want to put the onus on my dining partner because I think it really is a matter of service. And yeah. like, we don't teach service. And maybe part of that comes from our history where, you know, good service is, you know, it, someone else's job. Um, and so we don't want to train other people to act in appropriate service ways. But 
you know, picking up the plates when everyone is finished, that's like something that you should just know to do as a server. Right, exactly. I, I think that this goes to the heart of training uh, in service, uh, you know, that, that service can be so subtle uh, in terms of like observing what's going on at the table, for example, and observing that it would be actually rude to go in and intrude and take that empty plate. And, that you know, I think that in the absence of training somebody that in that sort of semi-subtlety is probably the instructions from the manager or from the restaurant that, oh, we want the table cleared as soon as possible. Well, I think it's also – I think Irene hit on something here too and this really does intrigue me um, that there's increasingly a perception that people are individual units even if they're all sitting at yeah, a table. Yeah, you know, I mean they're, they're looking at their phones and I mean yes. you know, there's this sort of sense that everybody's a That's free a agent, point. a free yeah. actor and so if you're done, you probably want your plate taken out of there so you can look at your phone more easily or, or whatever. <laughs> the idea that you would be there on this sort of convivial and socially conjoined basis – it may be a little bit our fault. We may be sending the signal. Oh no, signal! No, I'm actually you know I show up when I That's feel why like. I'm and putting I, it back yes. on the server in the restaurant because that is the, their whole purpose. They have is to, to teach provide <laughs> that moment. Yeah. If you're going to make the the effort to, to go out and sit down at a restaurant with another human being, and I'm one to sit at restaurants by myself, so that's not always you know the the reason I'm coming to a restaurant. But if I'm going to sit with one or more people. The point is to be with that person in this restaurant. And so you need to sell me. Absolutely. All right. Well, if you want to have time to endorse things, we have to stop right now. Uh, I'm sorry. I have to clear your plates. Uh, are you all done? Okay. I'm done. Have to go. No, too bad. Too bad. Too bad. Too bad. Are you done? Can I clear your plate? No. How about now? No. Well, can I take your salad plate? Okay, okay. Boy, these guys facing the firing squad really like to linger over their food. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Alex Dubin, Deborah Timms, and Jules Lefevre. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Clark Gable. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff dressed up as their favorite Gone with the Wind characters, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On Monday, the story of a young woman using food to come back from an aneurysm. And now... Back to Colin. Yeah, that'll be the story of Jessica Fector, who at the age of 28 uh, suffered a very debilitating brain aneurysm, but then came back from it. Uh, she lost some of her senses in this process and uh, came back from it through cooking, eating. It's a book called Stir. Uh, all right, time for endorsements. Denisha Dugan, you get to go first. Uh, I'm going to start with um, a play that's playing at TheaterWorks right now. It's its last week. Yeah, you can't get tickets. So, oh. Well, maybe they extended the run. There might be they extended the run. I don't want to say that. They did extend the run, and I think that you know there's a couple more. So before it sold out, I would definitely endorse good people. My uh, colleague R. Ward Duffy is in it. I actually met him doing a race at TheaterWorks. So that's my that's my ringing endorsement. And then Two Roads has an event this weekend, um, and this one's for my sister because she's a Two Roads Brewery fan. Um, check out their website for all that information, Two Roads Brewery. All right, James. Um, I just wanted to, for people who haven't discovered yet, um, Eastern Connecticut, where I live, is really developing in unexpected ways. Uh, Stores downtown, which people may not know about, is an amazing new development next to the Yukon campus, which actually has a real bookstore, the Yukon bookstore, a great place to hang out, and uh, has things like Dog Lane Cafe, a really amazing place, but also right nearby on the same trip while you're visiting there, you can go 
about seven or eight miles to Willimantic. And Willimantic Main Street is becoming an amazing sort of urban place with all sorts of interesting businesses, everything, uh, you know, juice bar. There's, there's, you can have dinner at Cafe Mantic and look out over the railroad line. It's a really, sort of really neat spot. And uh, you can walk up and down Main Street and actually find some places to buy food and also just hang out. It's really amazing discovery that, that a town can come back like that. Um, so both those places are amazing. And uh, lastly, uh, I'll just say The Last Waltz, uh, The Audience, and the magnificent Julie Taymor Midsummer Night's Dream mm-hmm. is all going on this weekend at Sydney Studio. All right. That sounds good. I saw the preview for Midsummer Night's Dream the other day. I want to go. It's so that, It was, looked so beautiful. Um, but, and I'm going to endorse a different movie that I happened to see in New York last week and then discovered that it's going to be at Real Artways starting tonight for the whole week. It's the called Wolf Pack. The Wolf Pack. Oh, yeah, and yes. it's a fast, it's a documentary. Um, and I, you know, about, a, about some kids that stay that, well, anyway, I don't even want to say what it's about, but it's, it's sort of about parenting, um, ma- dysfunctional marriage, sibling relationships. And it's a very interesting documentary if you're interested. Real Artways starts tonight. I think I may be there. It was playing up in Great Barrington for the Berkshire Film Festival, but I never made it over to see it. So oh. um, a few things to endorse. Uh, the beautiful Sub-Edge Farm. It's, it's this lovely farm that sits on Town Farms Road, Tungsis Road. I forget what, whatever that road is there that connects Fisher Meadows and Avon to uh, Route 4 in Farmington. Uh, just a gorgeous, gorgeous setting. Uh, Roger and Isabel have taken it over. And they are uh, from 9 to 3 on Saturdays. They run a farm store there that has the stuff that they grow. Uh, and eggs and chicken and pork and stuff like that and also some things that come also from other small businesses around them. It's a, sort of, and they do cooking demonstrations and you can eat food and, uh, that they've cooked from local ingredients and they're really doing a very nice job there. They also have these beautiful Toulouse geese. Geese are not usually beautiful. These are actually unusually beautiful French and therefore aloof geese. <laughs> um, uh, I also want to just uh, – a topic which almost made it onto the show today but it just came up too late and we had too much in the mother load a section of the New York Times. There's a piece by a woman who was trying to enroll her child in kindergarten in West Hartford. And on the form, uh, it asks whether the child was born by vaginal birth or cesarean, which she <laughs> finds a rather intrusive question for the West Hartford public school system to be asking. So anyway, I recommend it. It's up on my Facebook uh, page if you can't find it anywhere else. But it's also on the Motherlode uh, section on the New York Times website. And then uh, Irene and I want to endorse Patrick McNee. That's his name, right? Yeah. He died Patrick this week. McNee. He was the original Mr. Steed on The Avengers. Uh, and The Avengers was great. It was British television when there was an HBO and stuff like that. You were so desperate for something good and different and Emma Peel in her cat suit she may have paved the way for Condoleezza Rice but we we forgive her we forgive all of them it was just a great show back in those days so bye 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 Mr. Steed bye bye Mr. Steed and Mrs. Ms. Beale's still around Well, the Supreme Court of the United States of America ruled in favor of gay marriage, which we may now call marriage.